Hey, Happy New Year, everybody. This is Kevin Bossenmeyer with UCI Conversations. My first guest for 2020 for this up-close and personal interview is UCI men's volleyball coach David Niffen. Coach Niff graduated from UCI with a degree in philosophy in 2003. He was the starting volleyball setter for the Anteaters for the 2002 and 2003 seasons, and in 2003, UCI Volleyball and the school received its first national number one ranking. In 2012, Coach Niff became the head coach of UCI's men's volleyball team, and also just as a heads up, on Wednesday, January 8th, Coach David Niffen will be speaking at noon in Humanities Gateway as part of the What Matters to Me and Why speaker series. With that, welcome Coach Niff. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. So let's just start from the beginning. When did you get interested in volleyball? Uh, volleyball for me happened a little bit by accident. My parents played on a company team when I was growing up and you know, like most kids, played a bunch of different sports. In eighth grade, we were doing book reports, actually more of like a, an interest report as kind of a welcome back. And one of the requirements of the project was an interview an expert in the field. It was basically on hobbies. I don't know if it was alphabetical or how it got around me, but by the time it got to me, all the stuff that I was actually interested in was taken, whether it was basketball or dolphins or whatever else. And so we landed on, well, I, I just blurted out volleyball. So volleyball became the project. So I went and interviewed I was fortunate. I grew up in Chico, California, and was right across the street from Chico State. I interviewed the head coach for women's volleyball at the time, Jim Brenton, and had a great interview, did well enough on the project, and he invited me to come back to his summer camp in the summertime. And so that was really my first exposure to volleyball was through this project in school that turned into an opportunity to go to a summer camp and play a game and be introduced to really a new sport. Uh, now, I also used to play, you know, summer vacation resorts. Did you f- start to understand the game more? Because I, I certainly am just a casual volleyball player. So, I, I discovered pretty quickly, actually, that I had an aptitude for one facet of the game, and that was basically the position of quarterback, uh, the person that delivers the ball to the attackers. So there's three contacts in a game of volleyball traditionally. There would be the pass, uh, the set or the setup, and then the the attack or the, the spike. And uh, found out pretty quickly that for whatever reason, my hands uh, wrapped around the ball well, and I was able to kind of deliver the ball. So I, I actually fell in love with that phase of the game, but I didn't understand the nuances of the game. I just knew that it was it was fun to kind of redirect the ball and have somebody go hit it. Uh, and that was about the extent of it, really, through the majority of high school until I was introduced to higher levels, probably in my senior year through some summer camps and then later through college. So you got out of high school. Where'd you go? Yeah, I graduated from high school. There was one school that was willing to let me join their team. It was Loyola Marymount University in Southern California, so overlooking Marina del Rey, a beautiful campus. It was great. It was a smaller campus, which I appreciated at the time. I think there were about 4,000, 5,000 undergraduates there. You know, my English class had 12 students in it, so it was able to feel a little bit more intimate. So even though I was far away from home, I think that was helpful. I made what I would consider my best friend there while I was in that first year of college. But after that first year of college, the program was cut. They actually took away men's volleyball and told us all we could obviously stay at school. And some of the guys were on scholarships, so they were able to stay and, and kind of pursue at least finishing their degree. I knew that I really wanted to play. If it hadn't been for volleyball, I probably wouldn't have ventured down to Southern California anyway. I would have stayed in Chico. So I actually transferred to a junior college, and I went to L.A. Pierce Junior College. We were fortunate enough to have a great season. I was recruited again, and I was uh, picked up by UC Irvine. 
It was the one school at that point that offered me a chance to come play for them. And so co-head coaches, Charlie Brand, who also played basketball here in the, the 1960s. He was, I think, in the first UCI class. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Mike D'Alessandro uh, asked me if I would join the team. And so I finished my career here at UCI and then later went on and, and played a couple of years professionally in Spain and, and came back as an assistant coach here and, and so on. So how w- were those UCI days? We The school received its first national number one ranking, volleyball. <laughs> that must have been pretty cool. It was very cool. I, I, truthfully, I... I don't think that I really understood what I had stumbled into, and I, I don't know that I was as grateful then as I maybe should have been uh, when I really look back and think about how unique and special the opportunity was to be a part of such a great institution and the timing of the whole thing, really, to be able to be on a team that was really ready to emerge as a top team in the country. Uh, UC Irvine, prior to that point, had not ever really competed at a national level in volleyball. We did win our first playoff match that year. We did hold a number one ranking for a while, and I think that really kind of unearthed some of the possibilities here of, of what was doable. I remember coming in, hearing things like, you know, I think our former chancellor, Cicerone, would say things like, you know, UC Irvine is this sleeping giant. And uh, it was neat to kind of see, at least in our area of that, for mm-hmm. volleyball to emerge. Yeah. Boy, Coach, you were here in 2003, and boy, when you look around campus now, <laughs> it, w- were those no truer words were spoken? Do you think it, the sleeping giant is 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 exploding? Yeah, it's it's really amazing. It's amazing, and, and I think that you know people talk about common experience. You look at some of the land grant institutions in the Midwest, you know, or some of these schools that have been around for for hundreds of years now, and you talk about common experience of the alumni. I think the common experience for most alumni at Irvine is, wow, look how much it's changed, yeah. uh, because it does seem to be ever evolving, ever growing. But there, I, I agree, there has been in recent years something has shifted where it, it seems yeah. that Irvine is now mainstream in its own kind of unique almost quirky anteater kind of way it's at least known and I think no specific area really gets to claim responsibility for that it's just been this kind of collective push forward which is really neat yeah yeah good so you graduate in philosophy now was that a big big uh, deal for you to decide to major in philosophy or how'd you come to that you know I I came to that through some uh just some great professors, really, that I had here at UC Irvine. Uh, one of the first classes I took at UCI was a class in logic with Aldo Antonetti. I just thought the world of him as a as a professor. Uh, he just he was so bright. Um, he was very charismatic. You know, he was the guy that would ride the motorcycle to school and uh, <laughs> just so intelligent. Sometimes you'd look around the room and just with the you know this is simple, right? And just to a bunch of faces that were just blank, you know. And uh, but it was just so fun to be in his class, and it was so challenging. And he had a great grad assistant at the time, and. Um, so, you know, just the interaction of uh, going from kind of that big lecture setup to the, the really kind of intimate time with the, the grad students that were teaching that, you know, were so good at kind of explaining the things that were brought up in class. It was a very different kind of educational format that I had been in before. And I think the thing that really cemented uh, philosophy and as a major for me was when I took a class with uh, Professor Jeff Barrett, uh, who's still on campus now. And, you know, just I just thought he was a phenomenal uh, teacher, lecturer, educator. Uh, so between his epistemology class and then later his quantum mechanics class, I just kind of fell in love with the process of philosophy. And I yeah. I really think that that pursuit has served me well in, in coaching, and yeah. it, it's been great. Uh, in just knowing you, you know, over the years, it seems like you draw on that experience into your, you know, whenever you're talking about sports and so forth, it, it, 
do I sense that correctly? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I think uh, it, what I try to tell our guys too is, you know, what you, you draw on your experiences or your reference points that you have, you know, you draw on what you know. And to be able to go back and have this kind of, um, yeah, I, I remember sitting with, with Professor Barrett after, after I graduated and t- chatting with him and, and really talking about the undergraduate education as a, as a practice. And, you know, this idea that you come together, you agree upon a methodology, uh, you pursue it with integrity, and then, you know, at the end of a 10-week period, you, you know, kind of, you're done. Uh, and then you go do it again. And that's, mm-hmm. that is so much of what this kind of athletic pursuit is for us. We're so fortunate to be in an industry where we can really uh, map something out, but it's bookended. Uh, so we look at something, we go, okay, there's a, there's a metric in place here to evaluate kind of how we did. There's some subjective or qualitative parts of this as well. But really, you know, as we kind of look at this, there's a problem to be solved and we have a set amount of time to do it. We've got mm-hmm. some constraints in terms of what the uh, the rules are. We've got some restraints based on how we want to pursue this. But uh, yeah, I think that practice of the undergraduate education and specifically philosophy continues to be a part of everyday coaching for me. And did you say epistemology? Was that one of your classes? Yes. Yeah. The, um, just the I'm sorry, th- theory you, of knowledge. Yeah. Me? Sorry. It, uh, <laughs> I know I rolled that right off the top. That's great. <laughs> um, and I had the same response when I signed up for the class. I'm not sure I knew what I was getting myself into. And yeah. uh, and if it shows up, just for anybody looking for the answer to the final, uh, knowledge is considered true, justified belief if you're in Jeff Barrett's class. So there's a little <laughs> nugget hidden within this interview for you. There you go. An inside tip from Coach Niff. <laughs> So, um, can, you know, could you just expand just just ever so briefly on a little bit what what that course meant to you? Yeah, at the time, I, I mean, I think it was really just uh, it was just such a good exercise in it, it was a love of learning. I think more than anything, I'm, I'm not sure that there's one specific thing that I can name that I took from any philosophy course. And to be honest, I don't remember much about quantum mechanics. Uh, I don't really remember much from the epistemology class but I remember that I enjoyed it I remember that I enjoyed the pursuit uh and I think you know that that means the world Uh, as I look at you know the student athletes that I'm fortunate enough to work with uh, everyone here at UC Irvine is bright enough to achieve greatness uh really I think what it comes down to cutting edge of common sense here you know it's it's are we passionate about it are we willing to pursue the mundane components of of what we're shooting for with some kind of passion behind it. And I think I felt that in philosophy. I think I feel that when I coach volleyball. I think I felt that when I played volleyball. I never really thought of these things as, as work or mundane things. It was just what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not to go so far as saying I was a philosopher, as I would say I am a volleyball player, uh, but there is something about the passion for the pursuit and just mm-hmm. kind of enjoying the process. Now, and you've also mentioned quantum mechanics. Can quantum is is quantum mechanics applied to different learning discipline because i'm not sure if i would have categorized that as philosophy sure i think something that's really special about uh the philosophy uh classes that i took here at irvine is there's really a specific kind of uh subset of philosophy here where you've got really it's a logic philosophy of science and so there's a little bit of kind of questioning the the scientific foundations and so that's really more where that was housed but certainly uh, quantum mechanics would show up uh, potentially like in a a physics class uh, within the sciences Um, the basic idea being there these two theories that are explaining the physical universe Mm -hmm. the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics and and the fact that they're not compatible is a problem Mm -hmm. Um, you know that they both work fine on their own but 
it seems like they should be compatible to really yeah. explain things. Yeah, yeah. So um, once we get beyond that basic idea, we are way beyond my pay grade. Uh, <laughs> but there are researchers on campus and people that are caught up in this, mathematicians and uh, physicists that are that are looking at this right, and, and right. publishing on it. In fact, uh, Professor Barrett, I think, has a book coming out this December uh, that he's pretty happy about. And uh, he's actually one of the leading researchers, I believe, in the world, um, kind of addressing this issue. Oh, super, super. Well, great to get off on that tangent, but let's like pull it back to um, your development. So you graduated in 2003, and what what's next for you then? Yeah, so after I graduated, I think I didn't feel as though I had really closed the book on that chapter or that at least uh, finished that chapter of my life. So I, I wanted to play more. Uh, at the time, I wasn't sure if I was going down maybe more school, uh, pursuing some kind of graduate degree. I wasn't sure if I wanted to get right into outdoor education is something I've always been really passionate about. I worked at a summer camp for seven years while I was uh, going through school and then beyond. Now, which uh, one was that? Uh, Mountain Meadow Ranch up in Northern California. It's just outside of Susanville, so uh, okay. about 80 miles north of Reno, Nevada, okay. but on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevadas there in California, and mm-hmm. just had a great time up there leading backpacking trips and taking wow. kids out and hiking around and uh, really kind of the, if you've seen the old kind of parent trap film, you know, it was the kind of sleepaway summer camp environment. I just, okay. I just loved it. Um, so sometimes I wonder if I miss my calling, but uh, there's no question. <laughs> I love what I'm doing now. But uh, right. so I continued to do that in the summer times. But uh, then I went over and played two years in Spain, and I was fortunate enough to land a contract in a, a town by the name of well, city by the name of Teruel, which is about about two hours south of Zaragoza would be the kind of closest big city, about an hour and fifteen minutes inland from Valencia. So kind of high desert Spain, about thirty thirty five thousand people in the whole city. Just had a fever for volleyball there, though. When we would play matches, you know, we could get two, 3,000 people in a very small venue, and it would just get really loud with drums and uh, ended up winning the, the championship there in my second year and uh, really, really felt like at that point I could kind of walk away from my playing days. And at that same time, the position of assistant coach opened up at UC Irvine, so that's when I came back to campus. So came back to campus, now you're, in a, now you're coaching. How, how did that transition go? It was tough. Uh, was it? it really was tough. Uh, I I did not really understand or appreciate the mundane components of coaching. Uh, you know, as a player, the in a, specifically my position as setter, I had so much direct influence over the game. I think the the biggest transition for me was really what what do I do now when I can't actually control the outcome? What do I do now when I'm only the person building the structures and facilitating competitive outcome? Uh, how do I do that? And, you know, it came down to a lot of tedious work, um, keeping track of other players' tendencies or, uh, you know, like where they would hit their shots so that we could be better prepared. Uh, and it was it was a long time before I really started to enjoy that. Uh, in fact, it was probably beyond our first championship, maybe somewhere in the 2008-2009 season, uh, two years later, that I really started to develop kind of a passion for the the tactical side of the game. Uh, before that, it was really just about the relationships. And I think that's what anchored me in those early years was just the connection with the guys and just looking around at my own experience and looking at some of the components of it. When I was a student athlete going, wow, I, I wish I had had it better. Um, I wish somebody had listened to me in this situation. I wish that I felt more heard. I wish that we had had a stronger culture uh, in some areas. To be able to then kind of provide or facilitate that for the guys was what really kept me moving through coaching in the, the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and that's grown over time, uh, but it's also been complemented by truly a, a, a passion for kind of the problem-solving aspects of the game as well. Were you filming back in those days? Were you, were you, were you filming your opponents or trading films and doing all that? We were, but I, I, I got to say, you know, it's the speed at which um, video breakdown has evolved has really been striking. It's, uh, you know, we were doing old VHS tapes and mailing them through uh, right. FedEx, you know. We'd right. send them and get them 48 hours later and... Uh, now everything is recorded and uploaded to a common server, and we're just, uh, you know, the data is overwhelming. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's certainly easier now, although I, I've got to say I'm really grateful for the challenges of the old way of doing it and the fact that it was slower and, and more tedious. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I was able to build some habits of how I watch video that I might not have taken the time to build with the mm-hmm. ease of information that's in front of me now. Yeah. So you're on a couple of those as in a coach on championship teams, did you go to the White House? You know, both times we went to the White House, uh, I was already committed other places. I it, Part of the assistant coaching at UC Irvine at that time, and, and I think still requires uh, a, a little bit of other yeah. jobs. You know, it's, it wasn't, even though it was quote-unquote full-time, it wasn't really a full-time position. <laughs> and uh, so I was already committed for other jobs. I did miss out on both opportunities okay. to, to the White House with two different presidents. So. Okay. I Hopefully think, we'll get that chance again. All right, all right. I like it. I like it. So you were an assistant coach here for how many years? I was an assistant coach for five seasons here. Okay. When did you start thinking about might like to be a head coach someday? Yeah, that uh, that did not happen until after I spent a year at University of Illinois coaching women's volleyball. I was the assistant coach at University of Illinois in the 2011 season. And we went to the NCAA championships with the women team, lost in the championship match, but was able to kind of go through the entire Big Ten season. And what I would say is that men's volleyball has always been a really uh, cultural sport. It's, you know, there aren't that many teams across the country. There's there's less than 30 Division One teams across the country that compete for the national championship. Whereas in women's volleyball, there's 300 teams. And so when you get to the tournament in women's volleyball, there's 64 teams in the bracket, just like there would be for men's and women's basketball. It really is... Uh, it's a show. It's big. And the Big Ten takes its sports and academics very seriously. And so it every day felt incredibly professional at a level that I just hadn't experienced before. It was the first time in my life that I looked at coaching and, and instead of looking around like, oh, this is a job that you do until you figure out what you want to do with your life, I looked at it as, oh, this is a career. Uh-huh. And so I, I would say that year at Illinois I'm incredibly grateful for because it shifted my perspective on what the the sports and specifically student athlete industry looked like uh, that was the first time I thought about being a head coach uh-huh. Uh-huh. and how did all of a sudden things opened up at UCI did you hear rumors or how did that work that was it I, th- I think we had always known I mean the the coach that was here for my senior year of playing and then the the coach that I worked with for the, the five years I was here made no secret that you know, he ultimately wanted to coach at UCLA, which was his alma mater. So I think really he was just kind of, uh, you know, obviously doing what he could here to build his resume and prepare to take over that job when his uh, former coach eventually retired. Um, His coach did eventually retire, and so that was a natural transition for him to go up the road to UCLA. Certainly more resources, salary, all those other things. But I think as much as anything, just, you know, that's it was his alma mater. That's where he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he took that, which opened up the, the head coaching position at UC Irvine. I think they got a really nice candidate pool here. I thought I might be a bit of a long shot. Certainly I was younger than most of the applicants. and But I think really what it came down to was continuity and culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful for the opportunity. And I 
continue to do my best to be a steward of those two things for the time that I'm here. Excellent. Coach, before we get into your head coaching here, can you share some of the inspirations from your coaches to get to where you were now as a head coach? You know, are there are there things that have stuck out in your mind like this meant you know, maybe it, it hit me then as big and it's still as big now or I remember hearing about this but not understanding I don't know can you sure yeah no that's good um, I don't know that I have a a quick answer to that it uh, as I think about it I I'm constantly trying to weave two things together uh, you know one is this idea of just competitive excellence which is important. You know, I mean, the, the reality is that we're, we play the game to win. Uh, we're trying to win. And so there is this element of, okay, what can we do to put ourselves in the best position possible to win championships? But then also knowing that that isn't enough. And as I look back on coaches, you know, coaches that I've had that have really kind of embodied this, this ability to win or this almost knack for winning, I appreciate it, and I'm grateful for those experiences, and I, I recognize this isn't in itself sustaining enough. I don't want to walk away. If, I, if somebody's writing my obituary someday, I'm not really interested in having someone write, you know, like David Niffen won volleyball matches. You know, it's, it's really it's great that we can do that, um, but there's another part of it that, that we really want to make sure is right there with it, and that's, that's really the relationship side of it and the process-oriented side of it. And I think I've had some coaches along the way that have just been so much more focused on or were so much more focused on me as a person than me as a volleyball player. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly something that I want to bring in to what we're doing. You know, this is not the Division Two Life Balance Conference. You know, we're talking about <laughs> Division One men's volleyball here. And and we're talking about Division One men's volleyball at an institution that is constantly pursuing greatness in other areas. So greatness is not foreign to UC Irvine. This isn't something that men's volleyball you know, has a patent on or something that only we do. Mm-hmm. You see greatness all over campus. Uh, so this is kind of the expectation. We've won championships at UC Irvine. So when people come in, we look around and we say, hey, this is what we want to pursue. And also to understand that only pursuing that just isn't enough. Mm-hmm. So I, that didn't come from one coach. This is years of kind of looking back and reflecting and something I'm still wrestling with every day where, you know, how do we how do we really blend these two things into creating this great experience here at UC Irvine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you came on board here as head coach men's volleyball 2012, right? Yes, fall 2012. How have you grown into the position? Do you feel like you're the same coach today as you were when you first took over as head coach or 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 was that a complete shock that first year when you were <laughs> head coach? Yeah, I, I think there's been a necessary evolution in my time here at Irvine. You know, year one was so much about proving, and I, and it really was. I mean, we, you know, we had just won a national championship in 2012. We had won championships in 2007 and 2009. We were a nationally relevant team, and we returned quite a few talented volleyball players and high-level student athletes to our 2013 squad. So that year I took over, there really was an expectation that we did well. We came into the season ranked number one. We left that season ranked number one. So we, no pressure here. Yeah, there was, we could only go down, right, with this, with this new head coach. Yeah. But I really appreciate something that uh, one of our middle blockers said, a student athlete by the name of Scott Kevorkin. Scott, just a, a phenomenal family and, and just a great human being. I'm so grateful he was on the team. One of the things he said early in, the, in his career that junior year was – 
we're here to prove ourselves as a team and as a culture and as an institution. We are not defined by our head coach. And, you know, that can sound a little bit like, wow, he just downplayed, you know, the fact that I just got hired and I'm not important. But I really appreciated that. And he was so right. You know, and that was really what we needed to hear because the coach that had gone up the road to UCLA, was, you know, he's well known in the industry. And, he, you know, obviously we had won championships with him at the helm. And there was some excitement about that. So for Scott to come in and, and say, hey, look, with or without a head coach, you got to remember it's Irvine that wins championships not a single person, not a single coach. And that was, that was huge. That first year though, I have to say it was all about proving that point as much as for Scott, as it was for me to prove that Irvine could sustain greatness. I don't want to say regardless of who was at the helm, but even without maybe an iconic coach or maybe even without an iconic player. And so that even in 2014, 2015, we won the regular season and then the conference championship. We went to the national championships. I believe we were seated number Number two overall, we ended up not winning the championship that year, but certainly a, a national championship contender. And I think even in 2015, it was still about proving ourselves. I think as I watched the competitive landscape shift, as more programs started pouring in more resources and as we kind of held constant with where we were and I, I saw the competitive field getting stronger, there was an element of, you know, winning championships is hard enough. It's not getting easier. Now more sports, more universities are pouring more into their programs. The the field is getting much tougher than it was before. You know, when we won in 2007 and 2009, there were only really two or three teams that were championship relevant. So we weren't really competing with the whole country in those years. And now we are. Um, Now there's several teams that are really championship relevant or several more. And so I think, but it's been a nice shift too, because now I think as much as anything, it's about improving and how good can we become and how much can we honor the process of the championship pursuit. So one thing we talk about a lot with the program, and we talk about, you know, cultivating champions, winning championships, both are important and the order is important. So, you know, we really want to create championship habits and those, my hope is that those become the reference points for these guys for the rest of their lives, that hopefully on some respect or some way, what we do in athletics with our student athletes pursuing championships can become reference points for other students or faculty on campus to say, hey, this is what championship process looks like. And that is just as valuable when we're taking a philosophy course across campus as it is when we're pursuing an actual championship in the arena of men's volleyball. Can you briefly elaborate on championship process? Sure. Yeah, it's... uh it's, you know, I, I heard a, a really great interview by a guy by the name of uh, Joshua Medcalf, who's who's now sports uh, sports side guy. He works with a few universities. He's worked with some pro teams. Um, he's actually got started, really started in ministry, and then moved from ministry into the the sports world. Uh, but one of the way he's ways he talks about it is, you know, when when you think about this product-based pursuit. You know, if someone says, I have these goals or I have these objectives, you know, I want to win a championship. You look around and you say, okay, well, we, we know what those things are. We know what that looks like to win a championship and everyone's got these goals. Uh, when he looks at process, I guess the way I would kind of highlight that is we're not talking about goals. We're talking about commitments. And I think that would be a way I might try to articulate a championship process is that we're not, the championship process is really about what are we doing with our 24 hours in a day? What are we doing with our our time that sets the foundation to put us in that conversation? Another coach that I really respect talks about it uh, a little bit differently, Phil Jackson, 
uh, you know, as you kind of read through his books and hear him talk, you know, he talks about really basketball being a funny game. He's a basketball coach. He won championships with the Chicago Bulls and the Lakers and just iconic. He's won 11 championships. And, uh, but that's how he talks about it is this idea that, you know, basketball is a funny game. Best you can do is create the best conditions for success and then let the game unfold. And so I think that for me is, again, that's the championship process is how do we, if this were a garden, you know, how were we, how are we nurturing this? How are we taking care of the day-to-day? Because the, the farmer that goes for the harvest doesn't try to cram for the harvest. You know, he's, he's constantly kind of chasing off the predators. He's, he's watering. He's nurturing. He's making sure the pests aren't there. He's pruning when he needs to. That is a long, long pursuit and a daily grind. Um, it's enjoyable, too, or can be. But that, that's what we're doing in the day-to-day to hopefully achieve some result that might only happen one day a year. Mm-hmm. So that's when we talk about the process, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. For our listeners that aren't familiar with volleyball, can you talk just a little bit about the basics? Like how many guys are on the court? How And, and does that equal, there, there's that number of starters? Can you talk a little bit about, just about the basics? Sure. Yeah, volleyball's an interesting game. It was invented in 1895 at a, at a YMCA. Just like it, basketball, it sounds yep. like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just a couple years was, after was James it? Naismith, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Basketball's volleyball? 1891, volleyball's okay. 1895, just a little okay. bit later. And actually, I think it was intended at the time to be kind of a uh, – uh, a less grueling sport for people to play. Um, turns out that volleyball is a very dynamic sport and very difficult to play. Uh, and there's there's a lot of crossover movements with other sports. But the basic idea is you've got a net separating the court. It's a non-contact sport. So the, what you're trying to do is basically keep the ball off the ground on your side, put it on the ground on the other side. And there's <laughs> a myriad of ways to accomplish that. But uh, you get three contacts per side. And the idea is there is a serve to initiate play, much like a serve in tennis. Uh, but then instead of only having one touch to return the ball, you get three touches on your side, and then you get to kind of pass it like you would in a game of football. So that setter position, the person that's setting up the attack, is that second contact. It would be much like a quarterback takes a snap from a center and then decides which receiver he throws it to. We effectively do that same thing. There's a serve. Somebody passes it to the setter. The setter then decides who they want to attack, and the attacker jumps up and tries to put himself in an elevated position above the net to create the right angles so that he can put the ball on the floor effectively. And then obviously you've got six players on the other side trying to keep that from happening. So some people go up to meet him at the summit, get up above the net to try to slow him down or immediately block his attack. And then you've got people behind that first line of defense that are scrambling low to the ground trying to keep that ball up in the air so they can create the counterattack situation. And that's the basics of the game. Gotcha, gotcha. So interesting that the when the ball comes over the net – that first person, that first touch is really kind of controlling it and then getting it to the center or the, yeah, the setter, right? That's right. I think I initially thought the setter was that first guy, but he's actually the second guy directing it. Second guy. And I think a beautiful thing about volleyball is, is because there are these compartmentalized contacts, you know, and you can only touch it once in a row. So you, you get one contact and then somebody else has to touch it. It's a constant pursuit of bettering the ball. And so when that first contact comes over, you know, the, the, really the primary objective is get that thing in the air. Now we can refine and, and get it to an ideal spot on the court, but really by putting it in the air, now it becomes the setter's job to come along and say, okay, you put it in the air for me. I appreciate that. Now I'm going to make it a little bit better and try to put it in a position where my attacker really feels like he has the best option to take a swing on it. And then the attacker takes that ball and says, hey, you know what? You didn't put it exactly where I wanted it, but I'm going to see if I can improve on this a little bit too. And yeah at least put it on their maybe their worst defender. I'm going to go hit it at that guy if I can't score the point immediately. So yeah. it's a it's a game of kind of constant improvement which is uh 
is really cool and it relies heavily on team dynamic and chemistry uh, so it's a it's a fun game cool cool and it's uh in the ma- matches whoever wins three games out of five that's right at the collegiate level it's uh best three out of five so you play three games rally score to 25 so every time the ball hits the ground or the whistle blows there a point is awarded you've got to win by two points in a game to 25 so a score that's 24 24 would effectively go to extra innings like baseball yeah. uh and then as soon as somebody has bested the other team by two points then you know it could be 28 26 that team would uh would then win and go to the next game or the next set and then the first team to win three out of five of those mini contests would be the winner of the overall match. So if you win the first three games, then you don't go on to game four or five. That's right. Gotcha, gotcha. So in terms of, you know, the setter, typically the setter will be getting the ball close to the net, yes? That would be ideal. Okay. Uh, It would would kind of be like teeing yourself up and putting yourself at the, the best possible position uh, that of course doesn't always happen, but that is the objective. <laughs> gotcha. And so, if you you know the best possible position is you're getting that the setter brings it to you know gets it to the net, and then is it how often is like yeah man we are in good shape now let's spike it or no not necessarily I guess it depends on the d- defense. Sure. Out of serve receive, uh, just we can give you some data on this uh, out of serve receive it's the best teams in the country are passing the ball in an ideal location about 60 percent of the time which would mean about 40 percent of the attempts are a little bit more erratic where it's kind of a scramble to just put the ball up in the air to a hitter but about 60 percent of the time the the teams are able to control the serves that go in and put them in their kind of we'll call it ideal or, or perfect pass area now that i would say that has a footprint that's probably you know, somewhere maybe eight feet along the net, maybe two to six feet off the net. Gotcha. So when you keep stats, you're like, hey, hey, guys, we're like, if you're only at 50% of getting it in the sweet spot, you're like, this is not good enough. We we got to, it's just not going to cut it. I mean, do you look at it like that or? We have to, you yeah. know, you, you, we have to look at the trends, the data, the statistics, uh, and and really the way that we phrase it is we talk about championship relevancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been matches won where both teams hit for very low hitting efficiencies or where the, the passing numbers are below the 60%. But because there's two teams operating, even if both teams are passing perfect passes 40% of the time or 20% of the time, someone has to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are no ties in volleyball. So you know, there, there are the occasions where uh, good enough is good enough. But what we talk about over the course of a season is really kind of hitting these championship thresholds. And so as we look at kind of the top teams in the country from a win-loss standpoint, we can also look at the individual components of their game, whether it's, you know, how often are they scoring from the service line? How often are they passing efficiently where they want the ball to go? What is the hitting efficiency of the attackers? You know, does it look like a good batting average in baseball or does it not look like that? And then we can kind of take those numbers and we call those our championship relevancy numbers. And then that way we just say, okay, hey, let's let's mark ourselves against these numbers of the top teams. And what I find is that if we are in the ballpark, if we're within percentage points, and it varies a little year to year, but we really just want to kind of be statistically within the top five teams in the country. If we're doing that, I consider us championship relevant. We don't have to be the best, 
but it puts us within striking distance. And then when you get to the playoffs, funny things happen when the lights come on and there's pressure and, you know, there's student athletes, someone's got a final or didn't sleep well and, or someone, you know, all of a sudden plays great that maybe hadn't played great before. There's enough alchemy and variables here where uh, just being championship relevant is enough. We don't have to be the absolute best in every statistical category. Mm-hmm. How does the season shape up? Are we, you know, going into January now, is the preseason over? Or are we still in preseason? How's that? We're, we're in a little gap between seasons. So uh, really there is no preseason competition for volleyball. It's unique in that respect. Uh, basketball really rolls in with a non-conference or preseason schedule and just rolls right into the regular season. Ours is a little more compartmentalized. Being a spring sport, we take a break. Uh, so we have a fall training segment where we have some friendly competitions that do not appear on our record, just friendly scrimmages and mostly training. Uh, and then we break for, for the winter holidays, winter recess, and then we come back and we start our actual season. We do have non-conference matches, but it's a fast start. So mm. our guys will come back from winter break on December 27th. We'll play a match on December 29th. So two days of practice before we play a match that will appear on our record. So it's a fast start for volleyball. Okay. And then when does league play start? League play for our conference, uh, we are now under the Big West umbrella. This is relatively new. This is the third season where Big West has sponsored men's volleyball. Uh, there are six teams that are sponsoring men's volleyball right now, or six universities that are sponsoring men's volleyball. What, what teams are those? So of the UCs, you've got UC San Diego, UC Irvine, and UC Santa Barbara. And then of the CSUs, the Cal State schools, you've got Northridge and Long Beach. And then the Island School is uh, University of Hawaii. So no Cal State Fullerton? No, Fullerton is not currently sponsoring men's team, although we are hopeful someday they'll they'll add in. It would be great to have another Orange County opponent. Gotcha, gotcha. So, and when does the the league play start, did you say? I'm sorry. That starts uh, usually first weekend in March. So just okay. about the time we're wrapping up Big West basketball is about the time men's volleyball will kick off. Okay. And if all goes well, is, is there a championship tournament? So actually, we're very fortunate. This year, in April, we will be hosting the Big West championship. So all six teams go to that. The lower seeds, four, five, and six, uh, three, four, five, and six will compete on a uh, Thursday night. Then we'll play off in the semifinals on Friday night and then play for the championship on Saturday night. The winner of the Big West Conference Tournament will get an automatic berth to the NCAA field and would likely be a, a top-seeded team in that tournament, a one or two seed. And then traditionally one and then possibly one other team would get an at-large bid to the NCAA field as well. And that happens at the end of April with the selection show being soon after and then the national championships being played the first weekend in May. And where's that going to be at? National championships are at George Mason this year, so out in Virginia. Okay. Coach, how's the team shaping up? Yeah. It's <laughs> a great question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I feel a little bit of anxiety about this year that I haven't felt in recent years, even though I – and I think it's because I see so much potential in this team. Uh, we're coming into the season ranked eighth in the country. Uh, I would anticipate, you know, we're, we're probably predicted fourth in the Big West, maybe third in the Big West. And as you look around, I, I think that that says a lot right there. So we are championship relevant. You know, we are a national contender right out of the gate, at least in the, the minds of others. As I look at our January schedule and I think about our team coming back, we are returning two starters from last year's squad. There's effectively seven people that start on a team. you got your six guys on the court in their main positions, then one specialist that typically comes in in a different color jersey, playing in the back row, a, a libero, uh, who really just comes in to pass the ball and is, is stuck in the back row. But uh, out of the seven starters that we'll have, uh, only two returners. And so 
despite the talent and the potential, uh, there will be some growing pains, I think, in January. And I'm not too concerned about the wins and losses in January as I am about the team's demeanor as we kind of go through. Uh, so that really will be how do we how do we respond to maybe some of the competitive hiccups that we have. Uh, if we lose some matches, how does a young team respond to that? Mm-hmm. Are we able to kind of maintain focus on the process and continue getting better because we know the team that we will be by the end of the year? Uh, or do we get discouraged and maybe lose valuable time and energy there um, trying to pick up the pieces from from being frustrated? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the flip to that could be true, too. We could come out on fire, and we could just as easily go 6-0 and as 0-6. But I see huge potential in this team, and that's exciting. And also probably has me a, a little bit more on edge this year than I have been in recent years. Just to backtrack real quick, so are there six players on each team, or is there seven players on each team for for a game? Six players will play at a time on each side. Uh, one player is basically given. It, think of it like hockey, where uh, there's a line change. So without utilizing a substitution or a break in play or a whistle from the referee, one player is able to in between every serve. Uh, switch onto the court to oh. specialize as a defender. Uh, and they'll, they'll switch in and out, and there'll be six. But the the bottom line is when that ball gets served, it's six and six. That's right. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so who are your returning players this year? Well, Big Scott Static uh, in the middle of the court, seven feet tall from Watertown, Wisconsin, will anchor down the middle of the court for us. He's been an All-American for us and uh, has led the country statistically in blocking, I think, every year he's been here. He'll be accompanied by Joel Schneidmiller, who was a top recruit out of Northern California. Uh, Joel's a 6'6 outside hitter, so he's strong. Uh, I would say not the biggest guy in the league, but a big guy in that position. And has really, ever since he got on the court for us in the NCAA tournament his freshman year, has really kind of demonstrated that he can play great in big moments. Uh, he was a member of the youth national team and junior national team, as was Scott Static. And those guys just have so much volleyball and experience uh, and confidence that. Uh, I think we'll be able to lean on them quite a bit early. Cool. And, and I do see that we have a local Irvine uh, guy, uh, Aiden Wolf Nielsen from University High School. Wow. <laughs> Always nice when we get the local guys to stay local. <laughs> I think so often kids think they want to, you know, kind of quote unquote go away to college. Uh, so we've been fortunate with the local guys that have stuck around. We've had a Laguna Beach guy before and a few others from the area that have played club or high school locally. But yeah, Aiden went to uh, Orange Coast College uh, before he came to Irvine. He knew he wanted to come to Irvine. We knew he wanted him at Irvine. He grew up with a few friends actually in University Hills back there, and uh, so he's he's always kind of known. He's an Irvine guy, and it's it's great to finally have him in house. Cool. So in your coaching career, it sounds like you've seen it all. You you know you can be nervous, and the team can can go on a run and be on fire, and you just never can tell or or you know, do you ever before the season starts before you've had preseason games like I know these guys are going to be really good and, you know is it like that you know I, I think the years that we've done the best are actually the years that I've had the most doubt about how we'll do uh, I think there's a there's really humbling component to that and there's a it's it's almost you know we talked before the interview about you know this idea of being appropriately anxious uh-huh. and and I think that's what we feel as competitors. You know, it's it's not unlike going into a big exam or a presentation where there's there's a gravity to it that that is weighty, and I I feel it. Um, you know, I I understand the consequences here, but I also understand the potential. And so, you know, that anxiety or that anxiousness uh, really plays well. I don't think it's an unhealthy thing, and it it isn't fear. It's just more about 
wow, I really want to do this well. Uh, and I just, I wonder if we can. And almost to the point of, I'm not sure we can, but what other option do we have than to just go all in and pursue it with every fiber we have? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's kind of where I'm at now. And I think that's where we've been in some of our best years. And so that, that itself is exciting. Mm-hmm. Does the team from every year have a different personality? Every team has its own personality. Uh, and, you know, remember that because we're, a, because we're an, an academic institution as well, you know, these kids are cycling through. You know, they're graduating all the time. So it's not like a professional team where we can sign someone to a seven-year contract or, you know, we have our, our same quarterback that we've had for a decade. You know, these things just don't happen. Our, our leaders are constantly evolving, and they're 18 to 22 years old most of the time. So even within their time at college, they're evolving and changing as people. And uh, So what we find is that, yes, each team has its own kind of culture or feel to it. Uh, and I will say that this 2020 team, is special. They get along in a way that I really, I really haven't seen before in terms of the comprehensive unity of this crew, uh, and that is incredibly exciting. You know, I think we have to give credit to competency, uh, but the character, the culture, the chemistry of this team is really outstanding. That that will be our X factor. If we're competent enough in our skills, I really think what we're capable of this year as a team is as good as any year we've been at Irvine. Excellent. Coach, just a quick transition into uh, on Wednesday, January 8th, you've been selected to speak at the What Matters to Me and Why speaker series on campus. It'll be at noon in Humanities Gateway, room 1030. Any thoughts about you know what you were selected, what matters to you and why? We've talked a lot about uh, about it, but in in thinking about what you're going to be speaking about, have there, has there been any insights that you've gained for yourself? Yeah, I as I look at the what matters to me and why, I I really do think about the simplicity of the game of volleyball. And you know, if if all I'm doing here is keeping the ball off the ground on one side and putting it on the ground on the other side, that's just not enough. So you know, using this as a vessel or a medium. Uh, to talk about relationships, to consider, uh, you know, what it looks like to work kind of in synergy or in harmony with others, to take a bunch of imperfect people and put them on a crowded court together and say, okay, this is what we got. We're bonded or banded together here, and we get to pursue something together and kind of figure this out. I think that for me is is something I, I would like to kind of focus on as we go into it. And I think that if all of us were to, to look around at what we do, um, you know, we have so many opportunities to teach these truths um, of how to, how to be a great teammate, how to be a great team player, how to be a great person. You know, it's, I think oftentimes people look around like there's some secret to, uh, to what being a good teammate looks like. And I, I would argue that's, that's just not real. You know, we know what a good teammate looks like. Let's not pretend that we don't. Uh, we know what it looks like to treat somebody well. Let's not pretend that we don't. Uh, so to be able to use sport and this opportunity to compete, I think that's that matters to me quite a bit. Mm. Excellent. Coach, thanks a lot for being with us today. It's been really insightful, a total pleasure, and I wish you all the best for this upcoming season. It'll be great to see how it develops. Thank you, and we'll see you tomorrow. Okay.